guys, welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan. How you doing, Dylan? I'm doing pretty good. Doing well this week? Yeah, I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing okay. We've had a little bit of snow yeah. on our way. Yes. A couple of snowy days, snowy mornings. Yeah, it was coming down pretty good earlier today. I thought I was going to get snowed in at work. Overall, it's been a pretty decent week. Yes, I was. I'm ready for spring. I'm totally ready for spring, and I was wondering if you were still sleuthing around on your missing children cases you've been watching. Yeah, I really, I mean, we talked about this last episode, the David Earl Miller story. I have been just engulfed in this Evelyn Boswell case out of Tennessee, missing 15-month-old baby. Her family, now hey, I'm not trying to disparage people of our region because we get called hillbillies sometimes and you know that there's nothing that gets me in fighting mode right than someone calling me a hillbilly yeah i know someone in england called us hillbilly on our review yeah i know that's (laughs) funny i was like thank you (laughs) i bet bet his teeth are messed up (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh if we're gonna stereotype i bet you don't have any dental hygiene and I'm just kidding about that, anyone listening to England. Why don't you go choke on some fish and chips? But no, really. I'm not trying to be, like, disparaging about our people here, but when I look at the overall case, I'm just like, what in the hillbilly yeehaw is this bullshit? Uh, yeah, everything you've told me about that family. Trailer parks and meth heads and liars and stolen cars and the daughter claiming that they're gypsies, but not, like, We come from the, you know, Romanian heritage. Right. We just like to move around and live in trailers. Didn't she say she she identified as a gypsy? Yeah. I don't think it works like that. Which basically just means that she and her mom have moved around to a bunch of trailers. Right. Because I guess they just keep getting kicked out of places because they don't pay pay the rent or something. Yeah, it sounds like that entire family is a hot mess. No, they are. I mean, and they all have like these crazy criminal backgrounds of like attempted murder, kidnapping, just nuts, right? And so at the heart of it, you've got this little innocent baby. No sightings of her since December. The TBI's had like 770 tips come in. They're trying to investigate. They're not turning up anything so far. They've dug up under, you know, under some mobile homes, they've dredged a pond. Yeah. I mean, there's, they're not having a lot of luck finding this baby. Yeah, I just feel like the more time passes, the uh, less likely of a um, good outcome. Right. But I hope I'm wrong. So if you're looking for an active case to keep up with, I mean, who knows what will come out next. The yeah. mother, her name is Megan Boswell. She is a pathological liar. So punch out and Google and you'll enjoy yourself, right? Yeah, you'll get down a rabbit hole of like scratching your head like, what the fuck is this? Oh my God. Yeah, it's crazy. And then the other story that I've been following is the Lori Vallow case. Yeah, I think everybody's following that one. That is the mother from Idaho. Two missing kids. One is like 17 and the younger is somewhere, what, between like 11, 13 year old boy. Right. And the older one is the daughter. No one's seen her kids since September. Her ex-husband was murdered by her brother, and then he killed himself. Yeah. And then her new husband had a wife that died, and now they're thinking that could be under like a mysterious circumstance. Yeah, so I think in uh, not that 
in a pretty close proximity to each other. His wife died. Her ex-husband was, or her husband was killed by her brother, who then killed himself. And they were in a pretty heated divorce. Right. Custody battle. Right. Because she's with this guy who's a cult leader now. And he apparently runs a doomsday cult. Doomsday cult. And they're... It's a Mormon. It's been described as a Mormon doomsday cult, and obviously that's nothing against anyone who happens to be Mormon. I'm sure plenty of regular, normal Mormon people out there. Well, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it's a fucking cult. A cult's a cult, right? A cult's a cult, right? Right. And cults are always like there's always some money changing hands and some weird sex shit going on. Right, like not I mean, all y'all can't do this stuff, but y'all need to do it with me, right? I mean, it's always weird. I like mean, that. I just feel like all cults pretty much center around some weird sexual something another. Uh, typically, but uh, <laughs> the women, the ones led by women, aren't usually structured like that. Well, that's ridiculous. Because if I was going to be a cult leader, it would be all about sex with attractive young men. And they often are a lot more. Um, they're not doomsday. They don't have a date on them, and they're actually um, fairly... They work. People are happy in them. Okay. Some of them. So, Lori Vallow was in Hawaii refusing to cooperate. She's now being held on a $5 million bond before being extradited to Idaho. Yeah, her and her new beau when the heat got on them, they just took off to Hawaii for a little vacation. A little me time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's an interesting story. Well, yeah, that $5 million bonds, I think, says a lot. They're wanting to make sure that no matter what access to cash or property anyone she knows or he knows has, that they can't get her out of jail. Right? Right. Well, you know, these mothers need to be held accountable for their children. Yes. what's happened to their children? You pointed out to me that there's actually very little, and it's about like a state-by-state basis, a law that could actually make you produce your children when damn authorities or other family members start really looking into it. There's really nothing on the books for everybody. You yeah, have to do this. states have Kaylee's Law, which, right. of course, was put in place after the whole Casey Anthony fiasco, where parents have within, like, 48 hours to report their missing children or they're punished right. and charged. But, you know, it's a handful of states. Maybe five, six states have that. And it should be federal law. It should be federal law. It should be across the board. And it should be a stiff penalty. I agree. We can protect our children. If you haven't done anything bad, you shouldn't be pussyfooting or it should be one or the other. Either you can or you can't produce your damn children. I mean, what the hell? Right. Yeah, that's crazy. So what have you dug up for us on this next case? Speaking of children, we have two true crime cases that are going to take us back. And we're going to be talking about two stories out of New England. Oh, wow. The first one takes place during the 19th century. Oh, okay. We're going way back. We're talking about Holyoke, Massachusetts. It was a booming textile and, you'll appreciate this, paper mill town. Oh, wow. An influx of immigrant and migrant labor flocked to western Massachusetts during the early 1800s in hopes, of course, of building the American dream. Holyoke is also, if you're interested in nerdy facts, the birthplace of volleyball. I've always wondered about that. Holyoke is located in the Appalachian Mountains near East Mountain, the mountain um, Tom, 
Oh, uh, yeah, I've never heard of that one. Mount Tom is an interesting one, and the Mount Tom Range, but are all part of the Appalachians. The Connecticut River also runs through the town, which aided in diversifying the industry in oh, Holyoke so, during this time. Yeah, so bringing a reckon they're bringing a bunch of stuff down the river, and you got little docks and trade and all that such happening. Yeah, and just being able to utilize like the power from the river. There was a big waterfall. Oh, I think they talked about you know, trying to harness some power from that eventually. And in the 1870s, there was a second wave of migration, which came from Canada in the north and the Irish from the south and the Boston area to find work, which ended up causing an economic downturn. There was not enough money in the city to develop new infrastructure and keep up with the growing need for housing and jobs. More people coming in were willing to work for lower wages, so it kind of created this stagnant economy. A lot of men and women were out of work looking for work. Yeah, it sounds like a little place that was growing, but then it's like it grew too fast. Yes. You get this big influx of people. They're looking for jobs. Now you have uh, basic economics or market powers, if you will. You got depressed labor force, people willing to work for nothing. So even the people have jobs, they don't have a lot of extra money. You know, it's just too much too fast for a little, a little girl in town, I'd say. Yep, just too fast, too much too soon, and then you have a lot of people out of work. Well, yeah, and then you get a bunch of people just kind of hanging out, nothing to do. That's not good, usually. John, or Johann Kemmler, was born in Germany. I'll be calling him John today. Because <laughs> you don't want to butcher Johann every I'm time? not up on the German. He was born in 1831 and came to the United States in 1852. He married Anna von Scheyer, another German immigrant. At some point, Kamler had studied medicine, but would always claim he was in poor circumstance. So his dreams of becoming a doctor never came to fruition. Well, that would suck to do all that schooling, not get to use it. John and Anna had five children, including triplets. They had Anna, Ludmilla, Emma, Mary, and George. George was stillborn, one of the triplets, and then Mary died about a month after the triplets were born. Yeah, I'd say that was uh, probably hard to have three healthy triplets back in that day, right? Emma was the only surviving of the triplets. John had a job at Germania Mills, which was a textile factory located in South Holyoke that specialized in wool. This was in 1879. Now, before this, Kimmler had abandoned his family for about six months to go to work in Denver. He took the entire family savings, which was $260, went out west claiming he was going to look for work, but reportedly spent much of the money drinking and not working. Oh, my God. Only to return penniless to his wife and kids. So what that, that's pretty damn cold move right there. What are they supposed to do this whole time you're gone? He then combed New England looking for a job, finally landing in Holyoke. Now, the family lived in an attic apartment that was owned by the company. Now, the company apartments typically in these areas were run down, basically squalor. Right. But they offered close proximity to the factory. In June of 1879, Kemmler was let go by the company and also told he had to move along with his wife and three children out of the apartment. Well, see, that's what kind of sucks about living in the company apartment. If you lose your job, it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, you got to get the hell out. Yep, pretty much. Upon returning to the apartment, he stood in the kitchen talking to his wife, 
I'm sure trying to explain to her that he just got canned was not an easy conversation to have. I mean, what are you like? Hey, honey, guess what? I got fired. Oh, and we're homeless. Oh, yeah. Do you have any boxes? (laughs) So out of the blue, he made a strange request to his wife. He told Anna to go down the street and buy a hat for their youngest child, Emma. He explained he would watch after the children while she ran this errand. Now, reports state that he told his wife, go now and do what I tell you. Okay. Ever the subservient wife, Anna does what she's told. I mean, my oppositional defiance will be like, no. Well, yeah. I mean, we're having a serious conversation about the future of this family. You talking about go buy a hat for the damn one of the kids? Yeah. And you're going to be an asshole about it? <laughs> but times were different then. Now, the children were in the living room of the apartment. Kimmer joined his kids and asked if they'd like some candy. He told them he had some candy upstairs. The children followed him where they go upstairs to this kitchen area. And he begins to prepare them a meal of gruel. Oh, wow. I mean, that's not Skittles. Well, no, I thought you said he was having candy. Yeah. You didn't say anything about some damn porridge, right? What is gruel? I I don't. From all I can peel away from what little literature I remember from school, is it's just like a freaking catch-all for everything you had left, kind of. Is it oatmeal? What? Is it stew? You should be Googling that. I'm going, I'm on that. I'm on top of that. He's preparing a meal of gruel. And while he is preparing this dish, he adds his own special seasoning. Oh my gosh. Cyanide of potassium. What the hell? Now, in John's mind, murdering his children seemed to be the only solution. He was ashamed of being unemployed, was tired of struggling, and had nowhere to live. Now, a lot of people find themselves in tough financial pinches from time to time, right? Yeah. But we somehow forge ahead. Well, yeah. um, Feeding my kid uh, horrible poison is not... And and so here's what the the vehicle of said poison was. Gruel, a thin liquid food of oatmeal or other meal, boiled, boiled in milk or water. Yummy. They eat cream of wheat. They wish they had cream of wheat. I think it's a little thinner than that. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. When you're in a devastating situation, it's hard to kind of see beyond that. Like, when you're down and out, you're like, oh, shit, and you kind of panic, and you think, like, oh, fuck, you know, everything's falling apart. Right. You have those moments of panic. Yeah. But it'll pass. I mean, it always does. If John had just waited, the Industrial Revolution would be happening soon. Economic prosperity was going to return to this area. 16-hour workdays and very dangerous conditions. I mean, that was on the horizon. John had laced the gruel with so much poison that after only a spoonful of food, Ludmilla vomited. Oh, it's... it's so just, he realized the children were simply going to get very sick, but not actually ingest enough poison to die. Oh. It was just enough that one spoonful, they're just going to get sick. Oh, and they're, then they're just going, yeah, and that's not going to work for him. So he quickly forms another plan. He grabs his pistol, forced the children into a bedroom. He claims he didn't speak to the kids. He pointed the gun at the oldest child and shot her in the back of the head. Oh, my God. She died instantly. Then he proceeded to kill the other children. He shot four-year-old Annie on the bed. Then he took the baby Emma onto the bed, covered her head with a pillow, and shot her. 
Later, powder burns on the pillows and the children's heads would show that they were shot at close range and died instantly. So I'm just, I just don't understand what mindset he's in. I, I, I feel desperation and maybe it's been hard for a long time and stuff. But I mean, he's also the guy who took all the money, went out west for probably some months, came back penniless. So he's not really getting the father of the year award in, in any respect from me. But so you try to poison your kids, which you don't do it right because who knows how to poison someone. And then you decide you're just going to shoot them all. I mean, what the hell? I just don't get it. After he murdered his children, John locks the apartment door and goes down the street to Blaze Borton Saloon, basically on the same block as the apartment. Now, regular bar flies would note Kimmler because he was not familiar to them, pacing back and forth in the bar for about 20 minutes. And seemed like he was whispering to himself. Okay. They described him as having a look of great trepidation, which is a great word. That is a great People word. Just don't express themselves in such a way these days. Well, I guess uh, what he had just done was pretty, pretty big thing, right? He finally orders a beer. After finishing his drink, he asks Borton, the saloon owner, to join him outside. Once they're out in the street, Kimmler handed Borton the key to his apartment. He said, I've murdered my children. And then he just turns and walks away. What the hell? That's crazy. When Anna Kimmler returns to the apartment, it was about the same time as Borton, the saloon owner, arrived. He had gone to check on things. Because right. he wasn't exactly sure if this man was telling him the truth. Or talk, just talking out of his mind. On? Yeah. It was reported that Anna was so overcome with the news of her children's murders that she had to be led away by friends. Well, I, mean, I could imagine. The scene was absolutely devastating for everyone who came into contact with this crime scene. Within an hour or two of the murders, word had spread fast through the community. John Kimmler had gone on to drink at Martin Smith's saloon, which was uptown. A patron of the bar named Adolf Engel, who had only minutes before heard what had transpired in the attic apartment, recognized Kimmler, walks over, grabs him up, and drags him to the sheriff's office, which was only around the corner from the bar. I'm surprised they didn't string his ass up. Once searched, the sheriff found the pistol on Kimmler's person and a note in his pocket with three words scrawled on it. Cyanide of potassium. Okay. The sheriff, a man named Kingsbury, told Kimmler he'd need to lock him in a cell so he could investigate what was being reported. But instead, Kimmler confessed to everything. And it was in a very matter-of-fact manner, with no remorse. He told the men he was out of work, couldn't make ends meet, and his fear was that the girls would grow up and be led astray. My God. They'd be happier in heaven. So basically, he killed his kids so they wouldn't turn to a life of prostitution. Was, okay. Was what he was alluding to. I'm sure they would have took their chances. He admitted he'd been planning to murder his children for about 10 days with the original plan to commit suicide after murdering his children. Kimmler said after he saw the dead kids, he couldn't go through with killing himself. I mean, oh, what a piece of work. That poor guy. He should have started with himself. Yeah. Those people, man. However, Ludmilla, the oldest 
child initially didn't die. She lived until about 9 a.m. the next day. When Kimmler was informed of this, he offered to go finish the job. Oh my God. Damn. The city buried the children and something like 2,500 people attended. It was a German-led service and many were being turned away from the funeral service. The New York Times had a reporter on the scene who also wrote that he was told Kimmler had abused his wife for years. Yeah, well, I'm going to imagine he wasn't. I mean, that sounds like he's just not a good person. You know what I mean? While awaiting trial, Kimmler's behavior started out being normal. He was cooperative. He would talk freely about what he had done. But then at some point, he begins acting very strangely. He stopped recognizing people who'd come to his cell repeatedly, like his lawyers and jail employees, just pretending he didn't know them. Right. Or maybe he really didn't recognize them. He would talk about his wife, his mother. His mother had passed away, and he talked about her like she was still alive. And people had believed Kimmler must have been insane at the time of the murders. Newspapers began reporting that his behavior was devolving into this very abnormal kind of thing where he was refusing to speak English, having these fits. Yeah. Dr. James H. Denny from Boston who had made insanity his specialty for about 15 years, was brought in to examine Kimmler. He suggested Kimmler suffered from furious blind mania. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Bright's disease, which is like a disease of the kidney. And also, Kimmler had had a brain injury at some point, which could have caused him to murder his children. Well, okay, so you, can, you, got, you could have some frontal lobe damage to the brain, right? Which could be... His impulsiveness and all that affected like like your run-of-the-mill serial killer kind of person. But, I mean, he could be just a horrible person who's selfish, right? Just the burden of the responsibility of these children and stuff was more than he could bear, really more so than what their welfare would be. Or he and he could be act, he could just be act. So I'm out. Yeah, that's that's a really crazy story. During the trial. It also came out that just before returning from Denver and settling in Holyoke, Kimmler was actually in Chicago and had married a woman named Frederico Mayo while he was in Chicago. Okay. He said his name was Rudolph Bernauer. During his stay in Chicago, he bought a saloon for $115. Wow. He told his new wife, that he was going to settle some business in Holyoke before he returned back to Chicago. Oh, okay. Never mind. Yeah, he's just an asshole. He's now, just a... get this. Yeah. There's also another report that he married a woman named Miss Mers, with whom he had an illegitimate son that was maybe about eight years old. So, on top of everything else, he's a damn bigamist. No, yeah, so not only is he a child murderer, but he's an adulterer and he's a bigamist. Which was, uh, Actually, a big deal. Eventually, John is sent to the Worcester House of Corrections, (laughs) the criminally insane ward. And he's there for about eight years before being transferred to the Bridgewater State Farm. On July 1st, 1897, Kimmler hung himself with a noose he improvised out of rope and a handkerchief. He was buried in an unmarked grave in Bridgewater, Mass. Yeah, he sounds like just a major old school shitbird. 
Anna Kimbler continued living in Holyoke in a house near Germania Mills. In the 1920s, there was a census where she reported that she was 78 years old, a widow, and living alone. And then she died shortly after that census was taken. Wow. Poor woman. Could you imagine? You know, I found something here that I was not aware. You know, you got the matricide, patricide, all that. But the act of killing one's own children, do you know what that's called? No. It is prolicide. Prolicide, okay. P-R-O. Did not know that. Well, thank you for sharing, Dylan. Yes, you're welcome. And I'm sure there's some people out there that already knew that. Thank you for sharing prolicide and for giving us an insight into the delicious recipe that is gruel. Yeah, that doesn't like the thinner the better. It sounds like you know. Can I have my gruel gluten free, please? Yeah, well, you don't have to worry about. It. Just add more water or milk. Okay. Lactose free milk, which I'm sure was abundant in the 1850s. Now our second story takes place in Maine. Okay, so we're all up in the Northeast. Captain James Purrington was born in 1759 in Bowdoinham, Maine. He married Betsy Clifford of Bath. Together, they had 12 children. Oh, my gosh. That's a busy family, right? Jeez Louise. Four of them died in infancy. Oh. In August of 1805, he moved his family to a suburb of Augusta, Maine, known as Ballard. It's a little community. I mean, at this time, Maine wasn't even like a state. Now, do you think back then people had so many daggum kids because of the um, infant mortality rate and everything was so high? They figured that like only 60 or 70 percent of them were going to grow up? Probably. And I think they didn't understand the pull and pray method. Yeah. And plus, I guess they needed all hands (laughs) on deck, right? I guess so. Plenty of help. Yeah. I guess it gets boring on those cold, lonely Maine evenings. Yeah, I bet so. The family seemingly settled into the small town life integrating themselves into the community, making friends, hanging out with the neighbors. Captain Purrington was 46 years old and an independent farmer. He supposedly had a handsome estate, a good reputation, and was known to be industrious. Wait, he's a damn farmer? And his name is a captain? And I don't quite know how he earned the title of captain. I think you can get it in other ways. I mean, I I think there's some... I think, uh, yeah, I've heard various other, I can't remember exactly what, but yeah, I thought for sure he was going to work a damn riverboat or something. I mean, maybe he did. Oh, maybe he did at some point, or maybe he was in the armed forces in some capacity. Perhaps. Okay. Record keeping, not always up to snuff. Damn, you must be a pretty badass to just go around telling people, just call me captain, right? Oh, captain, my captain, yes. Yeah. On July 9th, 1806, sometime between like 2 and 3 a.m., James, who is Purrington's son, fled to neighbor's, the neighbor's house, proclaiming his father had gone mad and murdered the entire family. Oh, my God. The boy had injuries, but they were only minor. Captain Purrington took a razor and an axe, murdering his wife, Betsy, and their six children, and the youngest being only 18 months old, Louisa. Oh God, with a razor and an axe? He then took his own life after murdering his family. Another of the Purrington children, Martha, survived but died about three weeks later from her injuries. Here's the deal. James, the teenage son, would state he awoke to his mother's shrieks. He jumped up from bed, ran to the door. It's dark. 
in their home. Only the moonlight coming in the window is like the only light he can see, right? He runs to the door. As soon as he reaches the door of the bedroom, his father struck him with an axe, but it passed over his shoulder and hit him in the back. Captain Purrington then attempted to strike him one or two more times. At this point, the younger boy, Benjamin, woke up, ran over, tried fleeing from the bedroom as well. This is when James was able was able to like break free and take off running. Okay. And escape. Dean Wyman, the neighbor, and Mr. Ballard, another neighbor, after James arrives at their house, telling them what's happened, they decide they're going to examine the scene. They find a bloody massacre. Take candles, go to the house, or poking around in the dark. They find Mrs. Purrington laying in her bed, her head almost severed from her body. Near her on the floor is her 10-year-old daughter, Anna, dead. So they could only assume that the 10-year-old girl heard the mother screaming, ran into the bedroom trying to help. Right. In another room, the two oldest daughters, totally butchered, the 19-year-old Polly was almost decapitated just brutally murdered with an axe. The second, 15-year-old Martha, was wounded. Her head was resting on the body of the 18-month-old baby. And now Martha's the one that survived, but only for three weeks. Oh, my God. So she's laying her head on the 18-month-old as if she had tried to shield the baby and was attacked. In the room with Captain Purrington, they find the six-year-old and eight-year-old sons, Nathaniel and Nathan, They were dead. Their throats had been slit with the razor. Captain Purrington slit his own throat as well. The 12-year-old son, Benjamin, was found in a state described as mangled. His pants were halfway on as though he were trying to escape, which makes sense because, remember, he jumps up out of the bed. Right. Trying to get dressed, trying to run out, likely gets attacked by his dad. So, basically, the the oldest brother is the one who made it. Mm Mm-hmm. On the Sunday before his death, Captain Purrington had written a letter to his brother stating that he'd soon be dead and asking his brother to take charge of his family. When his wife found the letter, he told her it was nothing to worry about and he was not going to kill himself, but he had a foreboding feeling that his death was approaching. Well, yeah, because I'm about to damn kill everybody and myself. On the day before the murders, it is said that Captain Purrington exhibited completely normal behavior going about his usual routines and work. He did grind his axe in the late afternoon. When his wife and children retired to bed for the night, Captain Purrington stayed up and was reading his Bible. My gosh. You know, there for a minute, I thought maybe the damn oldest son did it, right? And he escaped and was telling the story, but actually it sounds like the father did really do it. The coroner, Elias Craig, did I say that right? The coroner? The coroner? Did I say the coroner? <laughs> yeah, I guess it, I always say coroner too, but it is a coroner. Because we're country? Yeah, the okay. coroner. I've seen the coroner van down there. Something done happened down the street. Right. So the coroner, his name was Elias Craig, he summoned a jury of inquest, which determined that Purrington, of his malice and aforethought, did kill and murder his wife and children. And as a felon, did voluntarily kill and murder himself. Oh, as a felon? As a felon. Wow. I like that, <laughs> how they went ahead and put that on him. It's even a very decisive dead. statement. Yeah. And declaration. I dig it. 
We need that more often nowadays. The bodies were taken into a barn, laid out side by side, and washed. Then coffins were brought in from Augusta, in which, of course, the dead was carried into a meeting house in the middle of town for a funeral. Captain Purrington, however, was not allowed inside the meeting house. Okay. His coffin was left outside and a top displayed with the axe and razor. Oh, okay. That's, I thought, I, I was with him, but, you know, that's pretty gruesome. But, you know, it goes to show that people have been, these types of crimes and stuff have piqued curiosity and interest from the community. Probably as long as, you know, probably happened in the caveman days. Can you imagine if they had only had a true crime podcast back in the 1700s? Yeah, but it'd be like a true crime herald, herald, herald. Yes. Howard, am I? You know what I'm trying to say. Like a damn king. The one that announces everybody's entrance into the hall. Yeah. Like with, like with a bugle. The herald. Yeah. The herolder. Okay. Yeah. The funeral was attended by many members of the surrounding county, as you can imagine. Thrill seekers. Yeah. Morbid curiosity seekers. Dark tourists. Exactly. They huh. wanted to come and catch a glimpse of this axe and razor. Well, I'd say it was a pretty, I mean, that's even to this day, right, if that happened, that would be pretty damn huge. The mother and seven children were buried in an unmarked graves in what is now called Mount Vernon Cemetery, but Captain Purrington was buried along the highway in the southeast corner of the cemetery with his weapons. Nice. I bet they're not there now. I bet somebody dug them up. Well, it was rumored that Captain Purrington had made remarks that he was concerned about the farm and that he should be destitute of bread for his family, pay for his cattle, and he dreaded the consequences. It always comes down to that. Even the modern version of that comes down to that shit. Like the people can't just, I don't know, they can't admit that they're a failure or something. Or that's what kills me is when they're, they're like, I'm going to kill myself, but first I'm going to kill my entire family. You know what I mean? Like, well, we see this many times. I mean, we've got the first case, yeah, of Kem John Kemmler. We have Captain Purrington, and if you dive back into our archives, the Lawson family murders. Very similar story. Very similar story. A woman who happened to be the neighbor, her name was Martha Ballard, was also a midwife and healer, and she kept a diary from 1785 to 1812, where she documented medical practices gossip, religious rivalries, and even some sexual escapades of the time. Damn. She discusses in detail the events of the Purrington Massacre, as it's come to be known. Wow. It's actually a published book. I can't remember the name of it, but you can find it. You can get it on like Amazon or probably at your local library. Wow. And I did read some of the entries on on the internet, and it's written in a very interesting way. Just language and the misspellings and... Really? Yeah. Kind of like a mixture of old English and um, all that. All yeah. Such. yeah, it's just a very interesting... The diary entries are just really... I'm going to check some of those out. Interesting, yeah. So, yeah, that's two cases. New England, both involving um, fathers who murder their families or their kids. Prolicide. Prolicide. I think I'm saying that right. You probably are. But you know what I was thinking about? When you were telling that story? Tell me. The neighbors that went over to this dark house with nothing but candlelight. 
and discovering and walking around in this horrible, horrible scene. Could you imagine how eerie and, you know, that would be by candlelight to make those discoveries of that woman and all those poor kids killed, hacked up, and just brutal murder scene? Probably commenting on the blood spatter, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, could you imagine? No, it's like something from a horror movie. Yeah, that would be scary. I'm sure that they took that with them all the rest of their their days, right? Well, and Martha Ballard, the midwife who had kept that diary, her husband was Mr. Ballard that I mentioned, one of the neighbors who had gone to investigate. Right. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Oh, I, I missed that connection. But yeah, wow. And they lived in the community of oh. Ballard. Which so, was named after, you know, this family. I bet her diary entry, entries were probably off a lot of what her husband described to her. You think? Maybe? Yeah, I believe so. And then in some of them, she just discusses the what son, James, yeah. feeding him, helping dress his wounds. Martha, the daughter who did hang on for three weeks. Martha Ballard being the midwife and healer. Tended to this child's oh, wow. wounds. That's amazing. Yes. Damn, I might have to read some of that because that's really like a, a really, a really good first-hand account of kind of what happened and what what people saw. Definitely. With historical accuracy, you know what I mean. It's not someone's take on it or what their great people told them about. You know. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. But a horrible story at the same time. Very sad. Well, thanks for tuning in to Mountain Murders. Of course, if you can't get enough of us, you can find us on Patreon, Mountain Murders Podcast. Actually just uploaded a brand new episode there for our patrons on Urban Legends. Yes, we rambled on and on, but we talked about some really interesting stories I've never heard. Yeah, so go check that out if you're so inclined. You can sign up as a patron for as little as a dollar a month and help support our podcast. We also have a live show coming up in Asheville, North Carolina, May the 9th at Fleetwoods, which is on Haywood Road. It's a really funky venue, and we're selling tickets, brownpapertickets.com. You can also find the event on our Facebook page. Here's a link in the event for tickets. Yeah, we can't wait to do that again because we had so much fun the first time. This is true. Yes, and we can't wait to see all our friends and family once again. If you're so inclined and you love the podcast, you can hit subscribe and also leave us a five-star review. Yes, keep them coming. We love it. All right, we'll be back soon with more True Crime. You can't see it, of course. But what I'm holding here is the perfect chicken finger from Raising Cane's. They're hand-battered. They're cooked to order. And they're delicious. Perfect, even. But the best way to describe Raising Cane's chicken fingers? It's the sound you make after that first bite. Raising Cane's chicken fingers. One love.